This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, in a echo-proof room this week is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam, you've covered yourself and the room in pillows. <laughs> yeah, I am in a dark room to preserve air conditioning surrounded by pillows to avoid the uh, echo chamber. So we've gone from the back porch, which was lovely until it got hot, but we listened to the motorcycles and the airplanes and your pool pump, to the studio <laughs> at the uh, our, our prior recording studio, which we found out I found out later on they had taken the sound baffling carpet and stuff out of. So you sounded like you were in the shower last week, which is fine. <laughs> and now this week you're in yet another location as traveling Sam tries to find a place where we can record this cleanly without some echo. So you can just imagine me hunkered down, surrounded by pillows. There you go. Yeah. That, that, well, you know I, what? I, it, at least I feel you're like comfy. a five-year-old that's made his own fort doing <laughs> <laughs> doing a podcast and the pillows. That is probably a very apt description. And all you need now is for the dog to come burrowing into the middle of it, and then it will feel just like home. So we're coming to the, uh, our third of our podcast on the topic of the resurrection and things that immediately follow the resurrection. And Sam, today you wanted to talk about the story of Jesus meeting the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So in our, our first episode on the resurrection, we, we talked about the morning of the resurrection and lots of the symbolism. Then, then last week in the second episode, on the resurrection, we talked about kind of the historical evidence and the, the the effects of the resurrection on the Roman world, and how that doesn't make sense apart from the context of resurrection happening. Sure. And so this week we're talking about the afternoon of the resurrection when Jesus meets two disciples who we have not previously met in the Gospels, uh, and he walks along with them. And the on the morning, or excuse me, on the afternoon. Of the resurrection. So uh, it starts in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, where we read, Now behold, I love that word, behold. <laughs> now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And that we found a period, so we'll stop there. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the first questions that I have is, and I mean, it's it, right there at the end. Their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Jesus was was making an appearance, right? And mm-hmm. as we said um, on day one, our, our episode one, when he met Mary in the garden, uh, he, she thought he was the gardener, you know, outside yeah. the tomb, and that he had to then speak to her. And at that point, she recognized him. So this same story, okay, which the, it was told in the, in uh, Mark chapter sixteen, also. And when this story is told in Mark, Mark records that Jesus appeared to them, quote, in another form or in a different form. So 
this is just now this is me and my i watched too many episodes of x files sam i'm sorry but was jesus <laughs> just like really unrecognizable or was he actively preventing them from recognizing him what do you think was going on here yeah, well, the the word that's being used in Luke is like he is he's preventing them from being able to recognize who he is. Um, but Mark uses that that you know he had another form, so they're looking at him, and it's not like he's you know blurred out like he's giving testimony, and they don't want to know who Jesus he is, was you know? pixelated and his voice was slowed down. You know, <laughs> yeah, nothing like that. But I mean, they're seeing a figure, but they're 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 prevented from recognizing or seeing his identity. And I think so, I think that was interesting because it, it, it calls to mind, or my mind anyway, Sam. It calls to my mind how Jesus would do all these miracles, mm-hmm. and then tell people, "Don't tell anybody about this." Yeah. So and, until after the resurrection, you right? Know, he 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 would say that quite a bit. You know, don't tell anybody about this till after the resurrection. And usually, the reason why he would do that is he did not want people to believe. Um, that he was going to bring about earthly comforts and glory and things like that. He wanted them to understand that suffering had to come before glory. But in this instance, you know, the suffering has happened. Right. The resurrection has happened, and yet Jesus is still not wanting them to see who he is. And there's a there's a pretty in, a pretty awesome reason behind that, I think, but this is just my speculation. Okay. So um, now the two disciples here uh, that were – that we're traveling together. Uh, we know that one of them is uh, Cleopas because it tells us a little bit later on than the one whose name was Cleopas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious. There was a, there was a, one of the Marys. There were three, three women named Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus and another Mary and Mary Magdalene that were at the foot of the cross, according to, I guess it was John's account. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was described as being the wife of, of Cleopas. It's spelled a little different. Do you think it's the same Clopas. guy? Yeah, Clopas. Uh, Probably most- the same guy. Yeah, so there are different spellings in Greek by one letter. Uh, so, the, so it's the, possible that it was the same person. Yeah, it's likely. And the only reason that I say that, the only reason I ask that question is that um, that if that's the same man, that he, I'm sure that this disciple had received a a a blow by blow, literally description of what took place on the cross from his wife if he was the husband of that mary you know that he had heard in great detail what had happened yeah she's coming home and they're they're going to have that conversation exactly that's been the topic of conversation all night friday all day saturday so this is this is on his mind big time so yeah whoever it is that he's walking alongside whether i mean some traditions say that it was luke i don't know some traditions say that it was maybe his wife again i don't know but the point is two of his disciples were deep in conversation about what all this meant Mm -hmm. Um, which means that i don't think it was any accident that jesus appeared to the two of them um, because it was that moment in which they were so trying to understand what had happened, so trying to figure things out. And and I feel like he was saying to me, at least, Jesus, by appearing to them, what he's saying to me is that in those moments where you feel like you can't understand it, in those mm-hmm. moments where you feel like I've like I, God, have done something that is inexplicable. I will come to you. It's like I will be there for you in those moments. You know, it's it's a it, to me it's reassuring. It's like they were these disciples were like I don't know what's going on. You know, I just I can't believe you, you, he's gone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, we're going to get into this later in the passage. I mean, you see what kind of grief there. But but one of the things that I love about this passage uh, when it says that their eyes were kept from being able to recognize Jesus, uh-huh. you know. 
How many times have you or somebody that struggles with deep skepticism said, why doesn't he just come and show himself? Then I would believe. Oh, if boy, I wish I had a dollar for every time I'd said that and heard that. So here you actually have the Lord who's walking alongside people that are struggling through grief and skepticism. And he's walking alongside of them deliberately not showing himself for who he is because he wants to reveal something to them and by extension reveal something to us do you think it's possible then i'm sorry to interrupt but do you think it's possible that that i mean in a sense then does he sometimes come alongside us and we don't see him in the same way absolutely okay absolutely no no doubt about it um you know the intimacy that the Lord has with us, that you see with his people, that you see in places like Romans 8, where it's like when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit is is praying and with groans that are too powerful for words. Like God is not oblivious to what you're going through. God is more concerned from his infinite focus that's upon you then you are concerned for yourself. He is with you. He knows your circumstances. He's alongside of you. So this is is a picture of that. But rather than coming, you know, it's, it's interesting because if, if I were writing a narrative uh, about a resurrection, somebody coming back from the dead, you know, he's going to come back with trumpets and glowing <laughs> face and shining. Yeah, and Absolutely. You know, it's it, it's going to be like nuclear-powered glow, you know. And here – Jesus, quite deliberately, he could have done that. For abs- for sure, he could have done that. But he chooses to come back in the ordinary. Um, and what he's going to do in this passage, as we'll see, is, one, he's going to talk with them. He's going to let them process their grief. And then he's going to challenge them and their grief and what their actual beliefs are. So these these guys are praying they're talking to God as they walk, right? They're, they're processing their grief. They're asking questions. They're letting God kind of probe and challenge them, right? Well, that's essentially prayer. But then what does he do? He, you're, we're going to see in a little bit that he's going to open up the scriptures to him, and he does. He walks through the word. And you know, later on, they'll say, man, when we were doing that, that study of the word, my heart was burning with me, in me. Like, I felt exhilarated. The word encouraged me. And at the end of this, it's not until the very end of this when they break bread that their eyes are opened right. and they realize who he is. Well, why is that significant for us? Because you know we walk, sometimes we say, Jesus, why don't you just come and show yourself? Why don't you just do these things? But the same thing that Jesus is doing to restore these two grief-stricken, doubting disciples is available to us. We can walk in our grief and talk with him. We can let him challenge us. We can go to the word. We can see his beauty in the word. We're called to break bread. And when we do those things, that's when we experience his presence in a powerful way. Um, And so what he's doing with these disciples on the road to Emmaus is very much accessible to each and every one of us. And so I'm kind of glad that he didn't come with that glorious light and trumpets that would have made it easy for Cleopas and the other apostle to say, oh, it's you. Great, you're risen. Yeah. But he he walks them through this thing to where, you know, it, he, he's not just smashing them on the head saying, hey, here I am, but he's letting them discover the beauty that this has always been the plan, and they find Jesus in the word and in the breaking of bread. And I think that it's interesting that he begins with a question. Uh, It says, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? So, you know, it's like, 
Well, I just thought it's interesting because it, it wasn't just the fact that he says, what are you talking about? But mm-hmm. his, he's inquiring into the, the nature of the conversation. Like, what is it that's making you so distressed? Yeah, that sort of thing. And then Cleopas has the answer that, <laughs> that I think is probably the most sarcastic that anyone has ever been speaking to the Lord <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? It's like they were incredulous that anybody in that area did not know what was going on. Yeah, and um, there's, there's some significant humor in this, that they're looking at the risen Jesus saying, Did you not hear about this? Yes. <laughs> well, I like this. Are yeah, you the only stranger? Are you new in town, basically? Yeah. Did you miss all this? And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week. If you didn't listen to last week's show, please take advantage of that. Um, it, it, in that this was something that had spread like wildfire all over. This was like, this was not like, there was not any doubt that Jesus had been crucified. There was no doubt that the story had spread that he'd raised from the dead. It's like this information was everywhere. Mm-hmm. The, everybody was talking about this. Did you hear the tomb was empty? So it is one of those things that, um, you know, I can understand Cleopas saying, what are you, you know, you, you don't know about this. And then Jesus answered them and says, what things? <laughs> it's almost like he's, it's uh, awesome. It, it's almost like he's, he's just having some fun here. You know, he's like, Oh mm. really? What things? Uh, <laughs> so they said to him, the thing, you know what I love about that though, sure, just, to, just to pause there on that. Like, I love the fact that he says what things, cause it's, it's clearly humorous, you know, when on the other side of this, what things, you know? Yeah. And, but, it takes the gravity. You know, there's some of us. I remember when I first came to faith, I felt really bad about the the crucifixion. I, I beat myself up like this is what I've done to God and I'm worthless. And it, and it actually, before I really understood the gospel, it was something that weighed me down with grief. And to see Jesus kind of joyfully in this moment already joking on the morning of his resurrection, being like, what things? Making light of his own suffering. He's so joyful to be with his people. You just get this sense that it's light. Like, he is he is thrilled to have accomplished the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and now he comes with delight. And so if you're one of those people that, that feels guilty about the suffering, I want you to hear the heart of Jesus here. What things? Like, I've got you. It's It's... it's it's you know the the illustration that he gives about a, a woman that's in labor that's undergoing intense pain. Yeah, it's really horrible in the moment, but the moment she has her baby, all the pains are forgotten. Mm-hmm. And here's Jesus, all the pains are forgotten. What things? It's awesome, isn't it? Uh, isn't it in Hebrews where it says that uh, for the joy that's set before him, he didn't pull away from the cross, and it's like he that he went through it knowing what would be on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that we're not facing necessarily. Uh, well, not not necessarily. We're not facing at all the same kind of suffering that that he faced. But there is that point in our future where we also are going to encounter the grave. Uh, you know, however briefly, you know, it's yeah. like the you know that's our destination. the The, the death rate is one for one, basically. <laughs> Everybody that's ever born dies, uh, and as a result of that, you know. That's a scary proposition. It's a scary thing. Our own mortality can scare us. But what we look at here is that it's joyous on the other mm-hmm. side of the grave. Absolutely. And that joy is you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Well, what did he gain out of it? You. Yeah. That's wonderful. And so it thrills the heart of God. Mm -hmm. It's not something that should provoke and weigh you down with guilt. Mm -hmm. Uh, It delights the heart of God. Well, that was the thing, you know, and let me go back two weeks. We talked about this in our first uh, talk on the resurrection, is that the church back in the days, in these times, first century church and and shortly after, their focus was the resurrection. They were talking about the resurrection. And over time, it's become this thing where, um, you know, we're focused on the crucifixion so much. Mm-hmm. We're always talking about the crucifixion and the cross, and, and well that we should, but as as you said in week one, crucifixion was kind of normal for these people. They saw it mm-hmm. all the time. Resurrection didn't happen, and mm-hmm. so that was the pivotal thing to them, and we tend to gloss past that. It's like we'll, we'll talk endlessly about Jesus' suffering on the cross, and it was the most, in, you know, it was the most that anyone has suffered, and it was on our behalf, and it was you know, efficacious in, in meeting the penalty for sin, and all these things are, are important and wonderful. And yet, then we go, and then he rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. What's next? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, no, you know, this the, the 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 resurrection is the end of the story, not the crucifixion. You know, if you're talking about his passion. Um, but so then, the only stranger in Jerusalem asks them a question: What things? <laughs> mm-hmm. So they said to him, "The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel." And Indeed, there you see their hearts, right? We yeah, and, were and hoping they were hoping that it was he that was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And I wanted to, even though this is mid-paragraph, let me stop for a second. Mm -hmm. Why do you think, I mean, today is the third day since these things happened. You know, if they weren't really quite understanding that he was going to rise from the dead, what was the third day stuff all about? Were they expecting him to to raise from the dead? And, And why did they say third day? So most scholars are going to say, you know, that when they're talking about today is the third day since these things happened, you know, in his lifetime, Jesus and his ministry, he'd been telling people that he must be crucified, that he was going to be taken to Jerusalem, betrayed, crucified, and that he would rise on the third day. And he he continually said that. So most people believe that they're referring back to his promise. So here it is. It's it's the afternoon of the third day, and in, in the Hebrew context, right, the day ends when nightfall comes, and they're right on the cusp of it. They're they're leaving now Jerusalem on the way to Emmaus. The last grains of sand are going through the hourglass, so time's about out for the third day business. And they, you know, have heard the empty tomb, but nobody's seen them. And the irony is, he's walking right alongside of them, risen. Mm. Um, you know, and and so they don't believe the women's account necessarily. That none of the men have seen them, and so here here they are. The last bit of time is ticking away on the third day. There's some people also uh, who believe that when they say the third day, there was a strange tradition in kind of a mystical Jewish sense that on the fourth day they believed that the spirit departed the body and somebody was like truly, truly dead and everything began to decompose at that time. And so some people say, you know, the end of the third day meant absolute death that this even the spirit has departed the body which that none of that's biblical but it was custom for the day but i think what they're saying is today's the third day it's almost dinner time and nothing's happened yet he yeah. hasn't shown himself and so 
we had hoped. I mean, they're already past tense. We had hoped. We mm-hmm. were hoping. But now we've re- resolved ourselves that this is not the case. You know, that uh, spirit departing the body after a certain number of days thing, I've always heard that brought up in the context of Jesus raising Lazarus, mm-hmm. that yeah. they told Jesus, you know, that, that he got word that Lazarus had died and that he delayed for a couple of days before he went to the tomb. Mm-hmm. And at, when he got there, they were saying, oh, don't, no, don't open the tomb because now he, he stinks, he smells, he's yeah, like decomposing. It's been four days. They say that. Right. So um, I think Jesus was making that point. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, now you're, you know, you want to make sure that he's dead, dead, right? Okay, so you're, we're all <laughs> in agreement. He's dead, dead, okay? Now watch this. Uh, so I, that, I think that was something that, you know, might have been in their mind is that after three days, this is really over. Uh, but obviously, too, they were looking for something and they were looking for him. Uh, and they said, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb. That was what we Peter and John ran to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus has an answer for them <laughs> or statement. Huh. And he's like, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning <laughs> at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things that the things concerning himself. There is a lot in there. Oh, um, man. Again, this I'm getting back to the same thing. Was Jesus disappointed <laughs> in them, huh. oh foolish ones and slow of heart? It sure sounds like he was. So I don't think he's scolding them okay. right here. I I do you know, this is very, very strong language. There's no doubt about that. You know, when he when he says, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken, you know, they would have been like, you know, remember they don't know who he is. Right. He's some stranger walking on a road who the, all of it and he's he's the lone, you know, in their mind they're thinking this is the lone idiot who doesn't know what's going exactly. on in Jerusalem during he's Passover. He's the only stranger in Jerusalem. <laughs> and now he's he's going to come and lecture us and he uses like this extremely I think the reason why he uses this extremely strong language is because this is such a it's such a debated point, you know. One, the Sadducees and the Pharisees debated over whether or not there was such a thing as the resurrection. Right. Then beyond that, within the Pharisees' camp, you know, there was all kinds of debate as to how strong the any kind of resurrection prophecies were. And so when Jesus weighs in here, he is saying, like, you have to be foolish and slow of heart to reject the fact that the entirety of the Old Testament has been talking about the suffering and glory of the Messiah that requires a resurrection. Um, And so then it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the the reason why we know that these disciples aren't – it's not like when Jesus says this, that their hearts are closed and they hear him and think, well, you jerk – you know, it says that as he's explaining these things to him, and he's taken the authority to explain these things to him, that their hearts begin to burn within them. Like they're they're amazed at the beauty of his teaching. They can't get enough of it. They're overwhelmed at how clear it is and how obvious it is. I I um, do think it's interesting that he's that it it just gives us uh, you know I mean it's it's there in the text. He says, and beginning at Moses and 
all the prophets. Mm-hmm. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I and I do think that that that's there for a reason. That Luke is is hammering home the point here that this isn't just in a few places in the Old Testament. It's not like oh yeah Isaiah. Okay, great, mm-hmm. you got Isaiah. No, no, yep. it's all the prophets and all the scriptures have yep. things concerning himself. And and this is one of the places where if you read it, you know, it used to be in the ancient world when they would read. They would read depth and they would read, you know, they would, there were many layers to what they would read. And the, the modern West, we read one millimeter deep where we don't, we don't see layered beauty in things. And so unless it says the Messiah will be raised on the third day, we just say, well, then it doesn't say it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that the Old Testament is laid out, all the major heroes of the Old Testament are laid out as what, what is called types of Christ. In other words, their stories are so near to Jesus's story except they fail. And what you'll see is in, in there will be a, something ex- extraordinarily similar to their story except Jesus will perfect it. And what you'll find as you read through the Old Testament, many of these types of Christ or patterns of deliverance, what you find is on the third day there's always a resurrection. And when we say resurrection, it doesn't necessarily mean that a dead person you know, came forth from the grave, but we mean somebody that was under the sentence of death came forward. Uh, life burst out forward. Deliverance happened. Um, and so when you open it up and you read that way, you see that great deliverance, which is what Jesus accomplishes in the resurrection – Great deliverance happens again and again and again on the third day. And that's why I just can't stay only in the Pauline epistles. I get I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I mean, there is a sense in which there are – and I don't think this is our church necessarily because I think we do a really good job at our church of, of explaining this particular thing, this connectedness between mm-hmm. what was in the, the Old Testament and the, on these types of Christ and that you could find Christ on literally on every page. Um, but I think there is a sense in – in a lot of churches in which mm-hmm. they're like, well, we're, we live in the, we're in the New Testament. You know, we, we stay in, and I, and, and I know I'm very comfortable in Paul's letters. I just, I love Paul's style. I, mm-hmm. I find it very easy to break it down and teach it and follow it because he thinks like I think, you know, yeah. and there is no way in which King David thinks like I think. I don't think <laughs> at all like Solomon or David or Moses. My mind does not work the way their minds worked, but Paul and I, I think we're going to get along. Is what I'm saying. I think it's going to be. I think that's going to be pretty good. I'm going to understand how he thinks, you know. So, but even Paul, when he writes, you know, you get into some of, some of the parts that he sees very poetically. You know, the illustrations that the, the Apostle Paul gives in, in his letters to the Corinthians and, and Romans. You know, he's pulling these patterns and and putting them into his letters. He he sees it for sure. sure. Oh, sure. No, no. I'm. I, we should be able to find really echoes of the gospel everywhere in the Old Testament. Yeah, and so I studied under Dr. Gage, who, you know, much of his life's work has been devoted to answering this question. You know, like you and I were talking before we turned our mics on. Man, if there's anything that Luke could have recorded, like, why not record this? This. Oh, (laughs) yes. Can you imagine? Like, what stories did Jesus talk about? And so uh, Dr. Gage has has developed and, and kind of taught 
what stories in the Old Testament point to resurrection? Because there's a lot of scholarship that actually says, you know, <laughs> that Jesus is off base here, you know, which is amazing to me. You know, yeah. there's a Dr. Gordon <laughs> Fee, who's a famous theologian. He's he's good at what he does, and yeah. he says, "quote Neither the tradition of the third day nor the resurrection is well established in the Old Testament," and it's because he's looking for a dead body that comes back to life on the third day, and that's not what you're going to find. Instead, what you're going to find is like even out of the gates of creation, when does life first emerge? It's on day three. And when is it allowed to emerge? It's after Jesus or God, you know, in creation has overcome darkness, which is the emblem of sin, and the waters, which all throughout the Bible are the emblems of death and judgment. So by on the third day, God brings forth life, living things from the ground in a dead world after conquering darkness and waters and life emerges on the third day so there it um, began on page one <laughs> yeah right right out of the gates it's 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 light overcoming darkness life overcoming death on the third day you you fast forward to one of the most famous examples uh when when you're reading through the heroes of the faith in hebrews 11 one of the reasons when you know when abraham goes and he's going to sacrifice isaac and you think oh my goodness in genesis 22 what a horrible story. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham sets out and is and he goes to Mount Moriah believing that God will raise Isaac from the dead. That's why he went. He trusted God that you know God promised that through his seed the salvation of the world would come. Well, here's his seed. He's trusting God with it. And so what what are we told in that story? I mean, you can think through some of the details of that story. He sets out, he he goes on a donkey, he rides to Moriah, which is modern-day Jerusalem. He sets the wood of a sacrifice on his sons. He's surrounded by two servants. They walk up the hill, um, and on top of this hill in the region of Moriah, which is modern-day Jerusalem, the father is called to slay the son. And it's on the third day that God cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do not, you know, don't do this. He spares the son, and then he looks at the replacement, which is a ram caught in a thicket. So here's the replacement sacrifice that's crowned with thorns, and God says that I will provide the lamb. And there you see, on the third day, the father spares the son from a decree of death. That is one, you know, the Exodus. Remember, they, they, the Israelites leave. Egypt, which is the land of death, it's obsessed with death. Their Bible is the book of the dead. It's deserts and tombs and mummies and pyramids. Everything about ancient Egypt is obsessed with death and slavery. And so when they come out after the Passover, after the 10th plague, they're on their way to the Red Sea. Well, gee, when do they get there? On the third day. On the morning of the third day, they've crossed through the waters. Think about what do waters represent again? Death and judgment. They come out of the other side. They're out of the land of death. God has defeated their enemy, which, by the way, is crowned with a serpent on his crown, Pharaoh, and it's on the morning of the third day that you find the the resurrection of Israel. It's a new beginning. They start their calendar over from that day. Um, and it, by the way, it's it's going to be Nisan. Nisan 17 is the day that that happens. You know what else happens on Nisan 17? The mm. resurrection of Jesus. Oh. You know what else happens on Nisan 17? Noah's Ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Wow. It's the, the festival of first fruits when Joshua comes into the land and manna stops and they're eating the produce of the land. It's when the death decree that had gone out over all of Israel in the book of Esther, 
You know, you've got the wicked guy Haman scheming to have a genocidal death decree that all Israelites are to be put to death. And what does Esther do? She calls a three-day fast, and on the third day, she goes before the king, and he extends mercy to her, kills the guy that was scheming against them, and all of Israel is allowed to live. It's it's a resurrection that comes on the other side of a death decree. When? On the third day. Like So you when you start opening up all these patterns of the third day, it's everywhere. So when they get out of Israel, right, they cross through the Red Sea, what happens to them? The very first story, they, they travel into the wilderness. For how long? For three days. And they're now starving and dehydrating to death. And they come across the waters of Mara, which means bitterness. And so they run and they scoop it and they drink it. And they're like, oh, this is bitter. Have you brought us out in the wilderness to die? They're under a death decree, right? This is the Israelites yelling at Moses, right? Yeah, correct. Right after right after the, the Red Sea crossing. So another three days. How quickly they forget. <laughs> so it's an, but it's another three days. Sure. And so what's the solution? There's one thing that's living out in the desert. It's a tree. And what do they have to do? They have to go to this one living thing in a region of absolute desolation and death. And that thing is cut down. And the tree is thrown into the waters. And then the waters become sweet for everyone else. And it brings life to them. Well, what do you hear in that? On the third day, the one living thing is cut down and thrown into the emblem of judgment. And what does it do on the third day? It brings life to everyone else. So when Jonah, you know, it's the third day. He goes down into the sea creature to the depths of the ocean. Jesus will call on this. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man. You know, he's pointing to this third day imagery that's coming with Jonah. Daniel in the lion's den. You know, I could go on and on. These are some of the really cool things that Dr. Gage teaches. But Daniel is condemned to death, right? He's thrown in the next day. The the king is sitting around going, oh, my goodness, I don't think he should die. Da, 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 da. But it's on the third, you know, he's thrown into the lion's den. It's on the morning of the third day after his death is decreed that he emerges from this pit. The stones rolled away. The lions haven't eaten them because God has closed the lion's mouth. And the king is like, oh, my goodness, he's alive. And what does he do? He sends decrees to the whole nation that they should be worshiping the God of Daniel. Like, again and again and again and again. So you're saying these things aren't a coincidence? The correct. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the concise way of saying it. The concise way of putting it is these things are not a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, Hosea the prophet says he will revive us after two days and he will raise us up on the third day. There's this obsession with the third day. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, as he's walking with these two disciples, is saying, you've missed it. You've missed it. Of course this had to happen. This is the way God tends to work. He brings forth deliverance and life mm-hmm. out of death and slavery on the third day. You know, and, he, and he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The suffering comes before glory. You know, the significance of Nisan 17 in the Hebrew calendar, the date when all these things you know, crazy events happen throughout redemptive history. It's actually the festival of first fruits. And so it was at the, you know, after the Passover during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this particular day was set aside for everybody to honor the Lord by bringing forth the first fruits of of harvest, right? And so, well, in the New Testament, you've got the the biblical authors who totally recognize this. And what are they saying? That Jesus is the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 20, you've got Paul who says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying is, even in this festival, Jesus has come forth as, come forth as the first fruits from the dead, which means what? He is going to be the first of many. That means that his resurrection is now empowered, and there's going to be a lot of people who come to, to enjoy resurrection behind him. And so he's the first fruits. Nisan 17, the first fruits, that's, that's pointing to resurrection. Jesus talked about that himself, that as a seed of grain has to die and be buried in order to produce life and to become, to give off many other seeds, right? Mm-hmm. That's the expectation. There's, there's this expectation that life comes from death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. So then verse 28, uh, it says, then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Uh, You know, I do think it's interesting when I read that description there that Jesus gave them the indication. He he gave them the the impression that he was going to go further. Um, And I kind of wonder whether that was something that he was doing also sort of on purpose. Like Mm -hmm. he restrained their eyes so they didn't recognize him. So they would answer his questions honestly. And then after he had talked to them and, and expounded all these things from the scriptures to them, I think that he wanted to have them reach out to him and say, no, we, we want, we need more. You know, it's like, yeah. don't, don't go Lord. Don't move on. And they didn't know it was the Lord yet. It's like they, but whoever you are, don't go, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, if you've, if you've ever been in a Bible study where it just feels like the spirit's moving and everything, you don't want it to end. You, you just want to go more and more and more. And Jesus does not impose here. You know, it's, it's, it's not like he's saying, Hey, I'm going to come into your house right now. Right. Um, he leaves it to them and their hearts now invite him in. And, you know, I, I feel, you know, of course the Spirit's moving in them, opening their eyes and it, the Spirit is making their hearts burn and everything else. But in the freedom and, and what the Spirit has enabled them to do, they can't get enough of him. And mm-hmm. that's, it really is our experience. You know, at, at that moment, they're like, I want more of this. You know, abide with us. It's toward evening. The day's spent. And, what does Jesus do? He'll never turn that off. He'll never turn that offer down. Right. He comes in and stays with them. Now it came to pass, verse thirty, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And boy, if that shouldn't have called their minds to something <laughs> yeah. that just happened a few days ago. And it says, then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. You talk about things like you were saying you wished you could have been there to listen to Jesus and what scriptures he would have chosen and how he expounded to to them as they were walking and to be a fly on the wall for that (laughs) would have been so fascinating. I mean, so obviously the point of that whole thing was that they he gave them that last sign like he took the bread, blessed it, broke it. That was the final thing he wanted them to see before he allowed, before he would let them recognize him. Mm-hmm. And then once that happened, once they recognized him, then, then he was on to his next spot. You know, it's like, um, by the way, I want that particular superpower at some point. <laughs> that would be a good one. Because, well, now this is just me. I'm just suggesting here. It says that he vanished from their sight, right? And then we have a little bit of their conversation. And we're about to see that Jesus, as he popped out from one location, that he's going to pop into another location. And I'm like, yeah. I want that superpower. I, you know, it's like, I would love to be able to just go from one place to the other 
you know, let's just say I'm looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. If that's something we can all do, I will have to ask, <laughs> Lord, is that just you or can we do that? To all, can we do that also? Uh, yeah, that would that would be nice. I, I have a feeling I, I would grow a little faster if yes. that were the case. So it says it came to pass. He sat at the table with them and he takes takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it and gives it to them. And what's what's interesting is, you know, he's he's not the one whose house this is. And yet, oh yeah, you That's notice true. He, he's taking the role as the host, and it's that kind of true. a bizarre thing. And I don't know if this was his intention, but it does strike me that no matter what table it is, it becomes the Lord's table. And what does that make us think of? You know, and and the other thing is when he's celebrating the Last Supper. So only a few days prior, he's given this promise. You know, he wants them to do this every every Lord's Day when they come together. He wants them. You know, to to celebrate or at least you know routinely commemorate the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine communion elements, and you notice he takes the bread, he blesses it, he broke it, he gave it to him. All those are the same exact language of the Lord's Supper, but you notice he doesn't take it. You know, his promise at the Lord's Supper it was that that was the last time he would share this meal with them until he came again. But they were to continue doing this. Mm. And so he sets the table, distributes the bread, breaks it, gives it to them, and then he's gone. Mm. And I think one of the cool things that comes, you know, Jesus is going to, to be on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, we're told, in the, in the book of Acts. Um, but there's a strange thing. You know, he's, he shows himself to the Emmaus disciples. We'll see in a minute that he shows himself to the, the 11 uh, apostles that are remaining and then he goes missing. Thomas is like, ah, I don't believe it. And it takes a full week until you get to the next Lord's Day where he comes and shows himself to Thomas. And so I think in this post-resurrection time, the Lord, just as he comes very ordinary to the, to the Emmaus disciples, right? And he wants them to see that his presence is with them in prayer and the word and in the breaking of bread – he waits a full week and shows up again when it's time to break bread. It's like his presence comes in a special way to teach them. It's like they're going through post-Jesus post boot camp while he's still with them in a special way on those days before his ascension. But that same presence, we believe, is with us when we come together on the Lord's Day and break bread. Yeah. When we come together in prayer and the word and the breaking of bread, the Lord is with us. They're having a systematic theology class authored by Jesus. Yeah. I mean, really. <laughs> so then the two of them talk to each other. He says, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting because it was the end of the day. It was it was evening time. They didn't wait until the next day. They got yeah. up and at night walked two hours back to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. And they said to them, the Lord is risen indeed. Oh, they I'm sorry. They were saying when they got there, the 11 and those that were gathered together were saying the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told these two disciples told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Just imagine the joy. Yes. <laughs> it's just I, I'm, I'm smiling reading this, you know, to have that that despair of we had hoped he was the one to now. It's like, wait a minute. He appeared to you. He appeared to me. He's back, you know, and they're all beginning to rejoice. They're beginning to see all this coming together. 
um, and, and how all of it was being fulfilled. And you can just feel the joy and all of their hopes now flooded with substance. Um, it's just, I love this passage. You're right. This, this room was jumping. Now, the interesting thing is he had just disappeared from these two guys. They had gone back to Jerusalem, gathered with the other, the 11 apostles. Uh, it says, now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. There's a, you know, that when he comes and he says, peace to you, you know, this is out of John 14, you know, probably one of the famous places. Like I was raised Catholic, so we would recite this particular portion of Scripture where Jesus says, before the crucifixion, as he's preparing them for his death and resurrection, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my Father, for my Father is greater than I am. And so, you know, he's he's been prepping them for him leaving, which they haven't understood. And he's he prefaces it with, I'm leaving you peace. Like, m- my peace will be with you, not as the world gives. And now here, he's his first words are, peace be with you, um, which I think might be something that would have reminded them of what he had taught them beforehand. Mm-hmm. But their reaction was, <laughs> but yeah. they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your heart? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So remember, his, his first words here are, peace be with you. Why are you troubled? His words in John fourteen twenty seven are, peace I leave with you, and then let not your heart be troubled. Right. Um, and so he's picking up very directly on what he had taught them. Um, but I love the fact that here he is in front of them. Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. Touch and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And it's like Jesus is being very patient with them. And even when he's standing in front in front of them, they're going, this doesn't make sense. You know, one of the things that that is an argument that you'll hear from skeptics is that 2,000 years ago, people were kind of buffoons, you know, and they they would take, they would accept, you know, ridiculous things like the resurrection. And what Luke is saying here is, no, they wouldn't, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, they're, they're looking at him, even when he's standing in front of him with flesh and bones going, this does not make sense. I can't believe it which is probably what most of us would do. They were saying, hey, he, he appeared to Simon and the two disciples saying, hey, he appeared to us. And then suddenly he's there and they're like, whoops, this isn't real. Um, <laughs> you know, so they had that dose of skepticism, I think, that you would expect someone to have when they were being presented with things that didn't make any sense to them. Um, yeah, and the other part of this that makes no sense, you know, Luke says that Jesus stood among them. And, and John's gospel, you get an additional detail that they were behind locked doors terrified right they'd locked the doors they're they're afraid of getting arrested and crucified so they're hiding behind locked doors and jesus stands among them on the other side of the locked door so this teleporting thing is happening again i'm telling you it's something i would really i hope we can do that which Uh, you know in the new heavens and the new earth i want to be able to like travel the world instantly (laughs) but if this is happening in the room where i'm at right now and you know he he knocks over my pillows um, but if, if that happens, 
I'm like rubbing my eyes, smacking my face, you know, like I'm I'm not going to be believing that he's just teleported through a door and he's standing in front of me and yet he's not a ghost. Mm-hmm. Like what we want to do, what we want to say is oh, this makes no sense. How can, you know, did he just kind of a phantasm go through the door? Um, but I think one of the things that you find here is uh, kind of an assurance to me that if I'm thinking about glory, right, and Jesus, God, has tied himself and all of his infinity has tied himself to one human flesh, then that means that the hundreds of millions or billions of Christians that go to heaven are going to have a limited audience with Jesus and his humanity, right? Because his humanity would be limited. But one of the comforting facts, and you know, I might be wrong, correct me if you've got a different opinion here, but one of the comforting facts and the fact that he is appearing all over the place, miles apart from one another, just on a whim, is that he is no longer, um, while he is still fully human, he is no longer bound by the limitations of his humanity. So in heaven, in glory, uh, the things that we look at, this Jesus who's going from place to place, appearing just at a whim and a snap, and he's in front of people, you know, uh, that boundless limitation of the Son of God is a good thing. He's he's going to be uh, appearing to his disciples in heaven, not limited by one location, not limited by a physical constraint, if right. that makes sense. And so, like, this is what I would expect. I remember when I first read it, Jesus kind of appearing and disappearing, I was like, all right, this feels kooky. Um but I think what this is telling us is that on the other side of his resurrection, um, he's going to leave the spirit behind to dwell in us, but he goes ahead, mm-hmm. and he is not bound. His powers are not limited as he agreed to take on the limitations during his ministry. I also think that uh, it's it's good that he says, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So he's willing to say, look, I, you know, I'm here and I'm available to you. Reach out and touch me. You know, you don't have to believe me. Just don't have to believe your eyes. You can believe all your senses. You know, mm-hmm. I'm here physically present with you. And while you're at it. Give me a fish. <laughs> you yeah. know, do you have anything to eat? And then he eats in front of them. And that's the point, Ghosts I think. Don't eat. When he had said this, it says in verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet. All but think about this. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with joy, with excitement and your faith, like so exhilarated that you stop for a moment and you think this can't be true? Like, there has to be something going on. I've never experienced this kind of joy, this kind of hope. I have to be I need to like rein myself in. I need to pull myself together. I think it's a, like a, this is too good to be true. This can't Absolutely. be happening. You know, yep. it's like they still did not believe for joy, and they were marveling. They were like totally like I can't believe this. Yep, yep. And so it's it, that we talked about how joy filled that room, and they're all sharing stories. But it's like okay, you're waiting to wake up. You're waiting for something to go wrong. This can't be true. It's too good. We've never experienced something like this, and so. You know, for the skeptic out there, you know, the apostles are right there with you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's you know, I, I can't believe this because it doesn't make sense. I need to see. Okay, now I see. Now I touch. And now I can't believe because it's just too good to be true. Like, mm-hmm. no matter what evidence you put in front of me, this just sounds like a fairy tale. How in the world could this be true? 
this is this is Jesus on the other side of the resurrection. This is the bo- this is his body as he put it back together, basically, yeah. and yet he carries the wounds on his hands and his feet, not his yeah. side. It's like he has chosen to continue to carry the wounds. Yeah, um, that's it's a measure also, of my love. It, it is. Um, and then he asks for some this, broiled fish and a honeycomb. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, one of the cool things is, you know, you think about they're in, they're in disbelief because of the level of joy and amazement. Well, when, when that disbelief, when that doubt settles into resolve and certainty and confidence, that extreme of joy and amazement is what will lead them out to universally – be willing to lay down their lives for this. Mm-hmm. This is this is the same thing that oh my goodness, death has been defeated. You know, the savior has come for us like that freedom from death and sin um and the joy of seeing a risen lord and to know that all of his promises are true. We'll send them all like we talked about last week. We'll send every one of them out willing to lay down their lives and every one of them but John will be martyred for the faith because of this overwhelming joy and amazement at what they have in the resurrection it's like he asks for food afterwards mm-hmm. and i think that he does that uh to re basically to reassure them and to reassure us that there is a sense in which that however it's going to be on that other side of the grave in glory in that new heavens and that new earth that it's going to be relatable and understandable to us it's not like you know there's there's people that have these opinions as to what it's going to be like and and how different it's going to be and i think that jesus behaving in a in a really kind of normal way here is saying look you know i'm not unhappy with the way i designed everything Mm -hmm. i'm unhappy about the whole fall and curse thing and i've taken care of that Mm -hmm. and now we're going to get back to everything's going to work the way that i designed it to work (laughs) that it's going to be a relatable existence in, in a sense I was reading through some articles written by people that studied ancient literature of this era and just cultural stuff of this era, and they were saying, you know, if you were writing a resurrection narrative, you would never, during this particular time in history, you would never claim that the resurrection was going to be a physical resurrection because Greek culture, Roman culture at that time largely saw the body as what was corrupt in the world, that the spirit was good, the spirit was pure, and one day, you know, you'll be freed from what corrupts you, because you associate your body with pains and aches and hunger and, you know, all these kinds of things, and it's a prison you want to get rid of. And so, like what you're saying, for Jesus to come back and go, it's accomplished, here I am in my body, they would have been like, no, 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 we we don't want a body, we want to be freed of the body. And so they were saying this is a like this is the last thing that the culture would have expected, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of more of an evidence of its truth that Jesus comes back and says, like you said, no, 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 I'm happy with the way I've designed creation. Right. You're going to receive a body that's going to be free of everything that you hate about bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I think the story of of Adam and the garden are important to look at because we get a glimpse there of how it would be how creation will be when it doesn't have when we're not suffering the effects of the fall when we're not mm-hmm. under the curse i mean literally it's going to be an existence that is free from the kind of violence and death and destruction and 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 it's going to be perfect for that reason but it's going to be relatable mm-hmm. um uh, yes 
Can we get there? T- can we go there today? Yeah. That would be great. Come quickly. Yes. Verse 44 reads, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And Luke will pick up that story in Acts (laughs) as uh, telling people about what happens next. But um, it says that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And from Mm -hmm. that, Sam, I take this idea that you know, our understanding of Scripture is a spiritual thing. It is something that God gives us. He gives us mm-hmm. this understanding of Scripture. And it's one of the things that answers the question of people. And again, let's talk about our friend, the skeptic. Our friend, the skeptic says, look, if all this stuff is so obvious, how can two people look at the same book and one of you believes it and one <laughs> of you doesn't? And my answer is this. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. It's something that God does. God yep. gives us an understanding of the scriptures. It's when we read it and it makes sense to us, that itself is an evidence that God's working in us. So when I went to the University of Florida, my guidance counselor encouraged... Go Gators. Go Gators. Yeah, go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators. Go Gators. Yes. My guidance counselor encouraged me to take a religion course because it filled a number of things over the summer, a uh, number of course credits. And mm-hmm. so I took religion, the New Testament, and and my entire college career i think that was either the worst or the the lowest or the second lowest grade none of it made sense to me i I would read paul or i'd read the gospels and it was like this makes no sense to me it it would like smack my forehead and fall on the table (laughs) none of it but when i suddenly caught interest it felt like you know something from outside of me which i know is the lord flipped a switch and now all of a sudden it just it was it was amazing and and it made sense to me and so you know the bible makes the claim it it makes no bones about it that faith comes as a gift um that the holy spirit prompts the holy spirit brings to life he he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and all that and that's what's going on in this passage you know jesus by the power of the Spirit, is opening their minds. But what I love in this is it's it's the same message that he gave to the Emmaus disciples, right? What he's saying is everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. Well, what's the law of Moses? It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then he goes on, the prophets, the Psalms, they're all about me. And then he summarizes it. He says, the Messiah is going to suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, okay, this is the message I gave to the Emmaus disciples. This is the message I'm giving to the disciples post-resurrection. This is going to be the hallmark of his teaching after the resurrection, and this is it. Everything going all the way back to the beginning has been about me and my gospel. Go read it. Go read it through those lenses. And it's not just an academic exercise. The The beauty of what he's giving to the Emmaus disciples and to these 11 apostles or 10 apostles is the ability to understand that all of history is about him, 
that all of history is about glorifying him. It is about his victory. It's about his kingdom. It's about his will. It's about what he's going to do. And he, like we talked about in, in our commentary on Ephesians, his whole purpose is to draw us to himself, to share his glory with us. And when we can see that he is the author of all history, when we can see that everything that ever happened in the story of redemptive history is about him, it is such a comfort because now we walk through this life knowing that our Savior controls not just the big moments, but that all of history turns and is about Him, and His story is our redemption. And so it allows us to walk with confidence knowing that that kind of sovereignty, that kind of control, that kind of authorship is in the pen of our Savior, and we can take comfort in that. And this story in particular also reminds us that when we walk in that confidence that he walks with us, next to us, even yeah. even at those moments where we can't see him, where we can't recognize that he's there, he's there. And that in addition to that, that he is going to open our understanding. He's going to be continuing to reveal himself to us through his word. Um, I think Psalm 119, it's where the verse is that says, uh, open my eyes that I can behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, it's, it's a, you know, the first place that we come to when we come to the scriptures to read and to understand is we come to him and ask him for understanding. It's mm. the, in James, it says that if any of you lacks understanding, ask for it and the yeah. Lord will give it to you. It's the one thing that there's, it's an unconditional promise. I love that about that mm-hmm. particular verse in James is that there's no conditions on that. It says the only condition is that I'm clueless. <laughs> and check. I check. I got that one. I'm clueless. And it says, if we ask for understanding, he'll give it to us. And I think that's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's, this, is a be- this is a beautiful story. It's, a, it's like one of the great afternoons in the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it would have been so phenomenal to be a part of that. But you know what? In a way, we are a part of it. You know, this is, we're all a part of this story. You know what I what I wondered. You know when when I get when we get to heaven when we stand before the Lord, you know it makes me wonder if He were kind of showing us a, a film of the way things were sovereignly put together. You know for the for the Emmaus disciples, this would have seemed like an ordinary walk. You know and, until it wasn't until yes. they saw what had been happening in the midst of the ordinary. I really do wonder, like, if I, when, when I get to heaven, if the Lord would be able to show me how many times I thought, you know, this is just totally ordinary. And, you know, he was this intimate with me. He was mm-hmm. right there with me. He was walking alongside me and just, just totally orchestrating something to bring me comfort or to encourage my faith, like how invested he is. And I love that he, he does all of this in an ordinary way, mm. um, just to let them find it on their own. You know, it's like he's patient. He doesn't club them with, over the head and say, believe. He, allow, he walks with them and allows them to kind of discover this on their own and how patient he is to do that with us to where, you know, he condescends and allows our faith, even though it's a gift, he allows it to become our own, where this is by means of us walking and us struggling and us talking with him. Mm. And, and I love that. And how many times has he been there with us when we don't even know it? Mm. Yeah. That's a totally. beautiful thought. Why don't we let that stand as our last word on this particular uh, topic, this particular day? Uh, we do have one more podcast coming up where we're going to be talking about another aspect of Jesus' post-resurrection because there's a really important thing that happens. I don't want to whet your appetite for it. A really important thing that happens when Jesus encounters Peter. 
Um, and so we're going to be talking about that in our next episode. But we clearly went too long on this one and we didn't get to it today, but you can look forward to that next week. We do hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that it's been profitable to you. We invite you to correspond with us if you have questions or comments, things that you've heard us say that you want to ask something about, or maybe something that you just want to tell us about your own experience and how these things have played out in your own life. We encourage you to send us email. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's riovistachurch.com. Um, also, to let you know that you can find all of the prior episodes of this podcast, both on our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water, and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere that you can find the podcast uh, to keep up with it. We'll be back next week with more. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.